coming up, perhaps the deepest of deep dives ever into beer garden theoretical physics, plus a brand new Mighty King. <laughs> I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Hit me up on the website for that. But now, let us talk physics, all inspired by a question from Mike Bristow, one of you, a viewer, out there on the other side of the glass teat. And we're going to start off kind of easy today, but this episode is rated ICBB for intracranial brain bleed. So just don't come crying to me if you wake up in the neurosurgery ward recovering, will you? We're going to start off easy, but then it's going to get properly spooky. So brace for impact. Phases on stun. Mighty King Dick 32 and 27 millimeter. Ratcheting podger. Such a beautiful thing to caress. What better way to literally Jam the point home. Yes. All right. Mike says, During your video, you stated that accelerating from zero appears quick and tails off the faster you go until you can't accelerate anymore, presumably due to the physical limitations of the engine, air petrol intake, physical properties of the engine, and ultimately air pressure, etc. At face value, that doesn't sound too hard at all, but I suggest that Mike here is lulling me into a false sense of security with his seemingly simple upfront question, and I am therefore vulnerable to relaxing in the presence of this, and therefore I may be attacked by a follow-up question that will see me on the floor bleeding from the ears awaiting the paramedics here in the fat cave, and I'd suggest that you brace for impact of a similar kind, because one of us knows what's next. So, anyway... I don't think Mike's really thinking about this in the most logical terms because it's not just aerodynamic drag and engine limitations and things of that nature. There's a real fundamental physics thing going on here and you have felt it. You've felt it a thousand times if you've felt it once. If you've got a driver's license, you know this. Like deep down there, you just know it. Your car accelerates hardest off the mark, when it is stationary, shortly after getting going, it's accelerating at its hardest. And at highway speeds, like 100 k's an hour or something, it's really not accelerating that hard, even though you are mashing that accelerator pedal just the same. So you have to ask yourself, what is the difference? And if, you, if there's any doubt about that, just look at the motion of the passengers' heads, right? Their heads go back the hardest off the mark. Okay, not nearly so much pulling out to overtake a truck at 100 k's an hour, even though the accelerator is equally mashed. So what's going on? And I'd suggest the only thing that can save us in this predicament is Isaac Newton. Okay, so the fundamental equation here, power is mass times acceleration times distance divided by time. That's just how this works. If you don't believe it, you just have to accept it because it works like so much of technology, all right? The proof is in the utilisation of it because, hey, planes fly and cars go and phones work and GPS works and all this stuff works and it relies on this kind of physics, which you can rearrange, right? You can say mass times acceleration, that can go together and distance over time can go together too. So isn't that happy? Because mass times acceleration is 
force and distance divided by time is velocity, not unlike this magic shirt, which is admittedly somewhat semantically promiscuous, but hey, I like it anyway. Now, just to be clear on this and the whole power thing, the engine is a delivery system for power. It's connected to a drive line to get the power to the road, okay? And when the power gets to the road, you get tractive effort, which is a force. And this is like a car in an ideal world, okay? It's just a box with mass and velocity being acted upon by tractive effort, a force, like a driving force. And let's forget about all other influences like drag and rolling resistance and things of that nature. The power thing, okay? The rotating shaft connected to the wheels delivers power. Power delivers the force. And the relationship is power equals force times velocity because, you know, facts. Okay, now let's think about that. Let's think about we've got a magic engine in our car that we can just flick on like a switch and it always delivers exactly, let's say, 200 kilowatts at the driving wheel. So... Yeah, pretty speedy car, actually. And let's say we're doing like 10 metres a second, which is 36 kilometres an hour, okay? If you do that, then the tractive effort force is like 20 kilonewtons, 20,000 newtons or about two tonnes worth of, you know, forward push. So that's kind of nice in an ideal world, okay? Um, if you double your speed you're going to halve that force from 20 down to 10. Don't worry about the watts a kilonewton. Just look at the relationship between these things because they all have to work together. And whatever speed you're at, the tractive effort is going to match the power. So higher speeds are going to mean less tractive effort because this total is absolute. It's 200 kilowatts all the time when we flick the light switch on. Okay, and if we go up to 40 uh, meters per second, which is like 144 kilometers per hour, which you should never do because, you know, in most places in Australia, your license will go on holiday if you are found out transgressing in this way, then your acceleration is going to be like a quarter of what it was when you were doing low speed, all right? So there is a fundamental physics thing in play here. It's not all about aerodynamic drag and engine efficiency and things of that nature. It's fundamental physics means that acceleration is less when speed is more, okay? But if we go into the real world briefly, and I know this will be challenging if you're a politician, but let's have a crack at that anyway, there's like additional resistances, right? There's aerodynamic drag and there's rolling resistance that work against tractive effort, okay? And Essentially, rolling resistance is kind of fixed. It doesn't really vary that much with speed, but aerodynamic drag certainly does vary with speed. It varies between the square and the cube of speed. So let's just say if you go from 10 to 20 in speed, you are going to go at least four times the aerodynamic drag. So what ultimately happens here is that you eventually get to the point where drag increases, you add it to rolling resistance and maybe you're battling uphill as well so there's a bit of gravity pushing against you. So the sum of all of those resistances of which drag is the main contributor because it increases with your speed, when you get to the point where all of these resistances equals the total tractive effort, you can't accelerate at all because F equals MA, wherever that is there, and, you know, when the total force is zero, your acceleration is going to be zero. You're going to be at constant speed. And in this case, you're going to be at your car's V max, like its maximum speed. 
The only time when that's not true would be when the gearing does not allow the engine to rev high enough to approach this condition where drag and the other resistances equals tractive effort. So, you know, in some cars, typically cars that are predicated on low-speed performance, they might run out of revs before getting to Vmax where tractive effort equals drag and all the rest. But fundamentally, this is the limitation that affects acceleration with velocity. And there's really no clever way of engineering this out. I mean, you can engineer out rolling resistance to some extent. You can engineer out drag by making cars more slippery. You can't engineer Isaac Newton out of the process. Your statement regarding acceleration struck a chord and made me think about a lifelong issue that no one has been able to explain. The issue being the finite speed of light. A light wave or particle, not sure if they've decided which is which yet, but never mind, travels, as you know, at a bit over 670 million miles an hour. And according to the prophet Einstein, Nothing can travel faster. Is it because there is no known force that can give it more momentum, or simply something that prevents it going faster by getting in its way, like the fabric of space itself, if that actually exists? I know this is a very simplified way of looking at it, but surely things should be explainable so the common man can understand. All the common axioms that get blurted out by nerds who think they believe in relativity, etc., drive me round the twist. I'm just looking for an honest, down-to-earth answer as to why light can't go faster than 670 million miles per hour. If you can find some Tampax lying around, now might be exactly the right time to be jamming it in your ears. Because, like, just solve this car acceleration problem for me, thanks for that, and by the way, can you tell me why there's a cosmic speed limit? <laughs> Jesus. But I do like the reference to Einstein as a prophet, because I guess, in a sense, he is. And so was Newton and all of the other luminaries that preceded them. They discovered this really clever stuff, and they had no idea how it would affect the world. But certainly it has. Look around now. If we could reanimate Newton and show him our cool toys derived from his theories, I think he'd be rather pleased. Anywho, to get to the cosmic speed limit for us, motoring performance nut jobs, I'd suggest the best way to think about this is let's get a car in the matrix, in a construct, on a completely flat, infinite surface, flat, level, smooth, infinity in every direction in the matrix. And our car might as well be a speedy car because we'll just code it up that way. And it always does 300 k's an hour. Like, never runs out of fuel, it's always doing 300. The only thing it can do is it can change direction on this flat, featureless surface. So what we need to do is to put coordinates on the surface because otherwise you can't discuss dimensions and directions and things of that nature, right? So we could call them X and Y if we're in a lecture theatre or we could call them north and east and south and west, obviously, if we're on a map or we could call them longitude and latitude because, hey... If we're describing the world, that works as well. I think we've proven that. But anyway, our car can do 300. It can do 300, wholly north. And if it's doing wholly north 300, it can't travel at all to the east because it's got nothing else to give us, all right? And if it's going wholly east, it doesn't travel at all in the north-south direction, right? Because it's got nothing else to give us. We can't ask any more of it because the limitation of the program is that the car doesn't do more than 300. 
But we can churn it out in this direction and we can churn it out like that and like this. And obviously, if it starts out doing 300 wholly north and we turn it and we start heading slightly east, every time we head slightly more east, we're traveling slightly less fast in the north direction, okay? And this is like vectors 101, like this much east plus this much north equals 300, okay? Pythagoras, eat your heart out, okay? If this is 45 degrees, it's about 212 or 213 k's an hour in each direction to get 300 northeast because that's just how this works. And to un if you can understand that, if you can bend your brain around that, you can understand relativity and you can certainly understand the cosmic speed limit. Before we bleed from the ears properly, we've got to talk about space-time, like four-dimensional space-time. Okay, very scary. But you're used to three dimensions. You're probably sitting in a box right now. It's not unlike this box, although hopefully somewhat bigger. Totally familiar thing, right? A three-dimensional object. It's got length and it's got height and it's got depth. Okay, it's got three dimensions. And you're sitting in a box now because you're probably watching YouTube. And you're watching YouTube in the time domain. So you're watching YouTube at one second per second. So that's everything that it qualifies to exist in space-time. You've got space and time, right? That's all that is. But to represent four-dimensional space-time some way that you can think about it, what you've got to do is reduce the dimensions of space so that you can sort of graph it up against time. And it's easy to reduce three dimensions to two, and I'd suggest you're doing that right now because you're watching YouTube. And the fat cave here is a three-dimensional space, and you've got no problem whatsoever interpreting that on a two-dimensional screen. You do it all the time, and if we weren't discussing that, you'd be doing it, and you'd be doing it so easily, it would be completely instinctive and subconscious, right? So what we can do then is take the two-dimensional space and just represent it using one dimension, like this is movement through space, all right? Pretty simple stuff, movement through space up and down here, and movement through time along here. I guess you could cut up a Super 8 movie of some event, like an Apollo moonshot, right? And each one of the frames would represent the time domain, and then each one of the pictures would represent something about a rocket's progress, you know, up or down to the moon, back, whatever. And that would be four-dimensional space-time represented not unlike this, space up here and time across here. I'd suggest that you're probably not moving very far through space right at the moment because you are sitting on your ass. So you're not moving through space at all, but you certainly are moving through time at one second per second. And when you look at four-dimensional space-time, this is the bit that gives everyone a brain bleed, okay? So just brace for impact. There's a speed limit on motion through space-time. It's the speed of light and we're all doing it, okay? We're all doing it right now. You're sitting on your ass, watching YouTube, moving through space-time at the speed of light. The mighty podger is sitting here in my hand, not moving all that much through space at the moment, but moving through space-time at the speed of light. And I'm not suggesting it's moving through space at the speed of light. I'm suggesting that... Most of this moving at the speed of light is causing the podger and me and you right now to move through time at one second per second. But if we did, if 
we did just go off the reservation here, and I'm just imagining all these people out there, sorry, like you perhaps, scratching your head and bleeding from the ears going, oh, Jesus. This is exactly what we're talking about, and yet it's as simple as the car example in the previous page, all right? So if we move really fast through space and we increase our speed through space, and we're still at the limit because we don't have any choice. Everything exists in space-time at the speed of light. If you move really fast through space, then your progress through time is reduced, okay? This is called time dilation, and you've probably heard about it in science fiction, but it's a real thing. They proved it in the 50s or 60s using jet fighters and atomic clocks. They put an atomic clock in a jet fighter and flew it really fast for the endurance of the aircraft, and then they landed again, and they compared it with a synchronised atomic clock. And the two clocks were at different speeds, basically. The two clocks had different times, essentially, after the experiment than they did before when they were synchronised. So time dilation is a thing. It exists. It's been experimentally proven. The Navstar satellite constellation, which makes GPS work, has to correct for time dilation. Okay? So it's a thing. There's not only good theoretical evidence for this, this speed limit that exists so that we're all moving through space-time at the speed of light, there's also good experimental data that this is a thing. There's nothing to refute it. It's a theory as opposed to a hypothesis, right? So nobody, no credible physicist knows why this limit exists, okay? No one knows why this is imposed on four-dimensional space-time. But the reason why you can't go faster through space than the speed of light is because there's nothing else to give. Just like the car can't go faster than 300, okay? It's always locked at the limit. And if you burn all of your motion through time by moving through space, by going like this, then time slows down, it gets asymptotic to zero, hypothetically, at the speed of light, time would stop, okay? But that's not why you can't go faster than that. It's just because there is no faster than that. There's no colder than absolute zero. There are limits everywhere. This is one of those. And put a thousand credible physicists in a room, they can't tell you why this limit exists. It might be God or it might be Allah. It might be the prophet Einstein. It might just be random chance. And I lean towards random chance on this because there are some very dodgy features to the universe, some design flaws that a truly supreme creator would not put in place, such as the frigging second law of thermodynamics. And for that reason, I just suggest this is just a, a salient feature of a random chance thing that allows us to exist. Okay? One final point on this, because there'll, be there'll be a theoretical physics nerd out there who's slamming the keyboard right now going, this is not a friggin' circle, you dumb shit, like this. It's not. It's a hyperbola. It's just, I've presented it like this so that you can see how this works, just like the car example. A hyperbola is just a different shaped curve, okay? A circle is like x squared plus y squared equals r squared. A hyperbola is x squared minus y squared equals r squared. They're different shapes, but they essentially represent the same thing vis-a-vis -vis the limit. It's just the shape of this limit boundary is curved in a different way, okay? And the other thing I think I should address is this whole thing about Every time I talk about this, someone comes up to me or gets in the comments and goes, you're a dickhead, mate. 
The reason you can't go faster than light is because you'd need to achieve infinite mass and that's impossible. So we better clear that one up too, eh? And if you weren't bleeding from the ears then, you certainly will be now because relativistic mass is properly scary. It really is. And to understand it, we've got to go back to being like 15 years of age but awake in science class where we learnt that momentum equals this P-shaped symbol, this Greek letter rho, equals mass times velocity, okay? And that's really simple. It's like if you throw baby podger at somebody at, I don't know, 50 k's an hour, that's bad if it hits them. If you throw grown-up podger at someone at 50 k's an hour, it's kind of even worse, like, if it hits them at the same speed, because more mass gives big podger more momentum, and it does more damage, potentially. And I'm not suggesting you should do that kind of thing, throwing tools at someone's very antisocial. But this is as far as it goes at school, right? But then if you delve down into theoretical physics, it gets very scary indeed. Properly spooky, in fact, because momentum is not just this. When you go really, really fast, momentum increases like out of control, disproportionately. And it's controlled by this thing here, like a little Greek lambda thingo, which was invented, like discovered, whatever, by a dude who I can only ever remember as Jimi Hendrix, okay? <laughs> but he was really Hendrik Lorentz, right? Jimi Hendrik Lorentz. And uh, he's uh, like a dead Dutch dude who figured this out, which is that when you go really, really fast, momentum gets really, really big because this gets really, really big. But when you're just doing mundane things, and by mundane things, I mean throwing podgers at people or, you know, playing sport or a moonshot even because that's not really fast in the context of relativity. When you go really, really fast, this number gets huge and momentum goes out of control. And that's essentially what relativistic mass is all about. See, if they sit you down in university and they go, right, relativity, here's how you learn that in physics, it may well be that the lecturer combines these two things mathematically and just refers to it as relativistic mass. And certainly when you get to relativistic speeds, relativistic mass gets really huge. But that's got no relationship with actual mass. Like, if you're a fat bastard, like wearing a stupid shirt weighing 82 kilos, and you do relativistic speeds, you still weigh 82 kilos, okay? Your mass is 82 kilos, is what I'm saying. Your momentum is out of control because of your incredible speed, but your mass doesn't change. It's just that computationally they put these things together, and then other people misinterpret what this actually means, and it gets into a situation where there's an urban myth about achieving the speed of light means infinite mass. It doesn't. It means getting to infinite relativistic mass, which is just some sort of airy-fairy concept that has no relationship with actual mass. So if you're not bleeding from the ears now, you bloody well should be, but well done. Hashtag respect. And if you take two things away from this, let it be... Well, three, okay? Let it be this. Let it be that there is actual physics that suggests and proves that your car will accelerate more slowly 
the faster it's going. And it's not just about aerodynamic drag. And it's impossible to circumvent because that's the way Newton wrote the code for that kind of thing. And the other thing is, you know, we've all got these bookmarks in our heads about reality and how it works. Like you get out of bed and you put your feet on the floor and you look at the ocean and these normalcy bookmarks kick in and you go, oh yeah, reality, I get it. You don't. <laughs> you don't get reality. You just get the bits that you're used to and the way they behave and extrapolating out into the extremes, the really big stuff and the really tiny microscopic stuff. It's a mistake to do that because reality does not work that way in extremis, okay? And the final thing is, I don't think nearly enough is done to pay homage to Jimi Hendrix, Lorentz, and, you know, Einstein, Newton, and all of those other luminaries who came up with all of this stuff. And the reason I respect them and the reason I suggest you should respect them as well is because without them, without the science, technology, engineering, and maths, Humanity's back to living in caves. We're back to busting our asses endlessly all day long just to feed ourselves uh, farming and hunting and things of that nature with back-breaking labour and no liberation from that by virtue of the exploitation of energy and all of that stuff that we take for granted in the modern world while we're sitting on our asses watching YouTube or downloading pornography or litigating or any of these other things that we do. If it weren't for the science and technology and engineering and maths, we would be back to living in those caves. And this is why it's such a risk to stop respecting the facts, at least as I see it.